listening to KRCBFM Windsor, Sarah. News, arts, ideas, where you are. 91.1 and 90.9. Streaming worldwide at krcb.org. And on Comcast channels 961 and 202. It's one minute after 10. And it's time for percussion discussion. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to KRCB-FM, Windsor, Santa Rosa. My name is Jim Laveroni, and the show is Percussion Discussion. And uh, this is the show that focuses on drummers, percussionists, and all the instruments of rhythm that move every genre of music along. And I'll be your host for the next two hours. And before we even get started with that, let me make an announcement off the uh, log sheet here, which is very unusual, but I'm glad to do it. Uh, Soul Fest, putting the soul back in solar at the Solar Living Center in Hoplin on Saturday, August 17th from noon to midnight with Hollywood green mogul Ed Begley Jr., activist and artist John Trudell, Congressman Jared Huffman, and visionary activist Carolyn Casey, and also music from Poor Man's Whiskey and Albino and the Avant Garbage Trash Fashion Show. There are also workshops on everything under the sun from solar energy to the latest in straw bale building. More information is available at soulfest, S-O-L-F-E-S-T dot O-R-G. All right. Well, tonight, a very special presentation of Percussion Discussion as I play part two of a two-part series on The Wrecking Crew, the session musicians of the 60s who played on some of the biggest musical hits in history. Tonight, the pre-recorded interview I had with Mr. Hal Blaine, drummer for The Wrecking Crew, will be showcased along with some of the number one and top ten hits he played on. For instance, if you thought Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys was the drummer in the studio when many of their hits were recorded, Think again. It was Hal Blaine. 
Do you think it was the Tijuana Brass drummer on tour with Herb Alpert that sat behind the drums in the recording session of Lonely Bull, Taste of Honey, and other mega hits? Nope. Hal Blaine once again. Hal Blaine may be one of the most prolific drummer in rock and roll history. He certainly played on more hit records than any drummer in the rock era, including 40 number one singles and 150 that made the top 10. Eight of the records he played on won Grammys for Record of the Year. Blaine, who was born Harold Simon Belsky in 1929, became a professional drummer in 1948 and joined Teen Idol, Tommy Sands' band in the late 50s. He was the most in-demand session drummer in L.A. during the 60s and early 70s, and a list of musicians he played with reads like a who's who of popular music. In 1961, Hal Blaine drummed on Can't Help Falling in Love with You, one of Elvis Presley's most memorable sides, and he would play on Presley's film soundtracks throughout the 60s. However, Blaine's best-known affiliation is with producer Phil Spector, where he served as the percussive backbone of The Wrecking Crew, the nickname that younger studio hands on the L.A. scene bestowed on themselves after the rock-hating old-timers complained they were, quote, wrecking the business. Uh, Mr. Blaine was a key component of Spectre's Wall of Sound production, which yielded such classic rock and roll hits as Be My Baby by the Ronettes, Da Do Run Run by the Crystals. Blaine also established a fruitful relationship with Beach Boys leader Brian Wilson, for whom he served as the first call session drummer. Blaine appeared on innumerable Beach Boys hits, ranging from Surfer Girl to Good Vibrations. He also drummed on countless recordings by the cream of West Coast pop musicians, including Jan and Dean, The Mamas and the Papas, The Birds, Johnny Rivers, The Association, Sonny and Cher, The Grassroots, and Gary Lewis and The Playboys. On the more adult side of the pop ledger, Blaine played drums on recordings by Frank Sinatra and Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. By Blaine's own estimate, he performed on 35,000 recorded tracks over and a quarter century's worth of work. He published his memoirs, Hal Blaine and the Wrecking Crew, in 1990, and I had the honor and privilege of talking to Hal Blaine from our studios here in Rona Park. Interspersed with snippets of the interview will be a sampling of the songs that Hal recorded on. We begin with a brief description from Hal on how it all started and how he was known for playing the drums melodically. So sit back, relax, and enjoy some tidbits and some great songs from Mr. Blaine and hits from an easier time here on Percussion Discussion. Well, you know, I'll tell you a funny story. And because comedy is my life, and my life has been one big joke. But the point is, there was a, uh, an interview going on not long ago, well, maybe a couple of years ago, with um, the great uh, trumpet player, the great jazz trumpet player, Miles Davis. Mm-hmm. And they asked him the same question. They said, what led you into jazz, playing jazz and bebop and so forth? And his greatest line, his great line was, well, I hated crowds. <laughs> now, it really works because if the musicians are out there thinking about 
becoming jazz musicians. Nothing personal against jazz. I love jazz. I was a jazz drummer. Uh, I was on the Basie Band. So, you know, jazz was all of our first, first loves, so to speak, from so many years ago. Um, but you cannot really earn a living playing jazz. That's all there is to it. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't know that. It was, For me, it was accidental. I was a kid living in Hartford, Connecticut with my parents. Uh, when I was about seven or eight years old, we moved to Hartford from, from Holyoke, Mass. And uh, I just it loved the drums. And, and right across the street from us was a, I think it was a St. Anthony's or St. Michael's Brigade. And it was a drum and bugle corps. It was really fun. And I used to hang out there as much as I could. Uh, by now I was, you know, maybe 10, 11, 12 years old and looking through the iron gates and watching the kids march and so forth. And some of the nuns and some of the, some of the priests were very nice. This was a long time ago before any of the uh, tragedies were going on. And uh, they invited me in. I told them, you know, that, that, that here I am, a Jewish kid living across the street, and I want to play the drum. I'm watching the drummers, and they invited me in. And I think they gave me my first little pair of drumsticks. One of the drummer kids gave me a pair of sticks. Today, of course, and all these years later, I'm endorsing the Zildjian Company and Vic Firth because they make such incredible sticks. No longer do you have to roll them on a glass to see that they're straight. So anyway, one thing led to another, and before you know it, I'm listening to the radio my dad was a was a um, a salesman at the Connecticut Leather Company in Hartford, and right across the street from the uh, uh, leather company, will happen to be the State Theater in Hartford. And the State Theater by then, I would go out to work with my dad on Saturdays, and he'd give me my little ten or fifteen cents, which was the the uh, admission in those days, and I'd be the first one in line. This would be 7, 7.30 in the morning. The doors opened about 8 o'clock. And I would sit there for five or six shows and see absolutely every name, band, Harry James, uh, all of the bands of, the, of, the, of that era. Wow. Um, so, in, you know, I, obviously I sat there intently watching the drummer. Yeah, yeah. And I'm embarrassed today to say that I used to, it was terrible thought, but I used to, I knew every arrangement backwards of all these bands. And I still hadn't played professionally. But I used to think, my God, if, if Gene Krupa up there with Benny Goodman, if, if he has a heart attack, I can jump up there and do sing, sing, sing <laughs> and save the show. <laughs> anyway, these guys, because, you know, you never forget. <laughs> I'm sitting, I was the first one in the theater every Saturday morning, sitting front and center on the aisle, and I'm watching, you know, as the curtains would open, and the, and the bands, the big bands are playing, they come rolling out on a great big rolling stage, movable stage, and all the lights and all the action, and, and you could smell the powder coming off of the entertainers, in those days, they used, you know, powder on their faces, whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
I guess it just hooked me, and I wanted to be a drummer. Did you take and any? Before you know it, uh, while we were living in Hartford, my dear sister, now deceased, bought me. I think we lived on 225 Martin Street, Hartford, Connecticut. That just popped out of me. <laughs> and we had, we lived on the second floor. It was a tenement, and it had a little balcony. And I used to set my little drum set up. My sister bought me these. This my first drum set. It consisted of a bass drum, a snare drum on a stand, one cymbal, and a little hi hat. And that was the setup. And I used to put that little setup on the on that little balcony that we had, and I would play for the kids when they were coming home from school or whatever. And my dad um, kind of fixed up a. Uh, he was great at at fixing things. He fixed up a kazoo for me to be in my mouth with a big rubber, fat rubber thing around from the leather company, but it was rubber, and it wouldn't fall out of my mouth, of course. And I used to sing, you know, into this, or hum into this kazoo and play, and it was great fun. (laughs) And the kids loved it, and they would give me a hand, and I got, you know, I got kind of hooked on applause and all that, and... And drummers, you find, are, are tremendous show-offs anyway. They're always looking for attention. That's part of why a lot of kids want to play the drums, because the, the girls look at the drums. They look at the drummers. They've got more to do than just play the guitar or just the trumpet or the saxophone or the piano. They get to smash and hit and crash and all the various... Years later, I designed a set of drums for the Ludwig Drum Company, which I was endorsing at the time. They called it the Octoplus. It was actually an octave of drums. The first time that ever happened to the drum community, and it completely changed the drum world. Wow. I just wanted more drums so that I could play melodically. A perfect example of of that is with the Carpenters. When I, you know, the Carpenters all of a sudden called me in, Herb Alpert, I was Herb's drummer with the Tijuana Brass, and he owned the company, um, A&M Records, Alpert and Moss, and uh, they were about to drop the Carpenters, and so Herb had a talk with him and said, why don't you bring my drummer in and let him do some work with you? Nothing against Karen, but, you know, he has... I personally had more experience with microphones, etc., in studios. And the first record out we did, what was it, Close to You or one of those records? It was a major smash. Yeah. And uh, the rest is history. And Karen loved those drums so much. She wanted a set made just like mine. And the company that did make mine, the the Blamier company, made my drum, um, each drum, different sizes, different lengths, because we spent a lot of time experimenting, and I started playing my metal timbales as tom-toms. So I put a drum holder, a tom-tom holder on the little one and legs on the big one, and I went and did my, the very first record I ever did was with Frankie Lane, which I'll never forget. It was called Don't Make My Baby Blue. 
And what I was doing was I was tuning the drums down instead of that high uh, timbali sound. I was getting a tom-tom sound, but I noticed that with the bottomless heads on the on these timbales, I got the DK that I loved. It was that when you'd hit it, boom, it kind of fell off. Yeah. And I would do that with both drums, you know, a, tom, a, tenor, a uh, small tom and a floor tom. And essentially, I loved that sound, and I wanted an octave. So I went to the Blamere Company, and, and uh, my drum tech of well over 50 years passed away about a, just about a year ago. Um, we worked on it. Howie Oliver, a great drum designer, he worked on the stuff, and we came up with a an octave of drums that rolled right into my regular drum set, my Ludwigs, which are on display now at the Nashville Musicians Hall of Fame. Um, Very beautiful place if you ever get to Nashville. Wow. So, um, you know, my life, as I've said before, was like falling into a vat of chocolate. I lived in Hollywood. I wasn't five minutes from any studio. Heaven forbid if somebody didn't show up, and it was rare, but it did happen on several occasions. They knew they could call me, and I would be there in minutes. I wasn't seven minutes from any studio. And, I mean, some of the greatest things I ever did, like like I think it was um, Burger King, the very first commercial they ever did, introduced to the world. And um, Anyway, Ricky, my drum tech, had all these drums, and he was always one set in front of me and one set behind me because I was doing three, four, five sessions a day or more. Wow. Sometimes there's only a 20-minute session or a half hour or 10 minutes. But that's the way it was. A so, lot of times we go in with the Beach Boys and Brian had to hear certain passages and he, he we would sit down and, and he would play the piano and play a few licks on what he wanted and we would try what we were doing, and he loved that stuff. But he had to hear it with his own ears. I should say one ear, because he was practically deaf in one ear. Uh, the genius of Brian Wilson. So, so all the- that... I mean, that led to so many wonderful, wonderful experiences in the studios with... You know, I'm just approaching 6,000 individual songs. That's not... Commercials, pilots, movies. Well, that's about right on the money because it. And I still say that's because of my training. I spent three years in the, at the Roy Knapp School of Percussion in Chicago because I was a kid. I just got home from from Korea. I took my GI Bill, and uh, Roy Knapp was Gene Krupa's teacher. Gene Krupa was, of course, one of my idols, Buddy Rich. Um, all these wonderful drummers that had attended uh, the the uh, Roy Knapp School of Percussion in Chicago. So I went to Chicago. My dad, sweetheart of a guy, was a shoemaker originally, and he managed to help me go to school in Chicago, and my mom, too, of course. And... Uh, I think all of the training that we had, forget just the sight singing or the sight reading of music, but but my, my minors were 
were in singing, in tap dancing, hmm. in all of the percussion instruments from five vibes to, you know, all the mallet instruments. I'm doing a great, uh, in a couple of, in about two weeks, three, maybe three weeks, I'm getting together with, with the great Joe Porcaro, one of the great oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, percussionists, and also Amal Richards. Yeah. They both happen to be from Hartford, Connecticut. We went to different high schools together, but these guys were my idols as I was growing up, and, and they were doing all the movies and on and on and on and on. So that's one of the things that helped me uh, working in strip clubs, that's in that book somewhere. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, All of the sight reading, you know, the new dancers that come up and throw the music at you, and you're a th- little three-piece band. You can't possibly sound like a big full orchestra. So I'm just looking to make sounds to fill it up a little bit.
And if you don't believe that Hal Blaine is one of the most prolific drummers ever, then all you have to do is listen to that track. The Wrecking Crew played on most of those Simon and Garfunkel songs uh, on this particular album, but um, Hal Blaine's drumming performance on the title track, which was a Grammy Award winner, was uh, absolutely exceptional. And also in that uh, particular set, we had I Got You, Babe, Sonny and Cher, Wouldn't It Be Nice by the Beach Boys and Aquarius, Let the Sunshine In. And so that shows the span of talent that Mr. Hal Blaine has. We're going to um, return to Hal Blaine's uh, interview that I had in just a second. want to uh, let you know that support for Percussion Discussion and other programming on KRCB-FM comes from members and from the Healdsburg Guitar Festival August 9th through the 11th at the Hyatt Vineyard Creek in Santa Rosa. 
The festival features the exhibit and sale of custom guitars, workshops on guitar playing, composing, and performance, and ongoing concerts on two stages all three days. Tickets and information at festivalofguitars.com or 800-477-4437. So in this next section, uh, Hal Blaine talks about percussionists and that one all-important lesson for all musicians, to listen. I'm a little angry with today's percussionists because I was with Nancy Sinatra for well over 30 years, and all the Sinatras, and Nancy decided to, to strengthen the band a little bit, maybe get a percussionist. She did, hired a very fine percussionist, but my gripe against these percussionists, they come in with, they've got 700 toys, and they're not listening to anybody. They're just doing their own show. We've all seen it, the percussionists, they go from from this timbali to these bells to tree cymbals, to the shakers, to the tambourines, they, n- they never stop. And I mean, every time that, you know, I'd go to make a fill, fancy fills that I've done on Nancy's records, boots are made for walking, all those tunes. These guys are already playing my drum fills. And of course, I put a stop to that real quick. And yeah, that was yeah, over with. yeah. But I can't understand that. I mean, I... I go to some of these places just to watch and enjoy music and have a meal, and I see that there's a percussionist back there with 10,000 instruments, and all he wants to do, you know, we call them toys. All he wants to do is play from the downbeat to the end. Move from this, move to that, go over there, ring this, make sure the audience is watching you. It's your show. Forget about the star. So it's so unfortunately, but it sounds like it sounds like you're giving advice to young musicians to really listen and pay attention and be and be cooperative with everybody in the band. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's part of you know part of R and R for me. Not only meant rock and roll, which was a filthy word, but R and R meant responsibility and reliability. And, uh, you know, kids ask me all the time, because I do clinics, and I'm happy to do that. I worked for, oh, what was that music store up there just outside of uh, Santa Rosa? Nice place. Mm. And I forget the name of the guy. In fact, he is now one of the managers of the music of the Museum of Making Music down here in uh, Carlsbad, California. It used to be the NAM Museum. Uh, National Association of Music Makers. Yeah, I was just down there in January. Right. Well, down there, a little farther down in Carlsbad, is a magnificent museum. In fact, one of my major sets of drums is in that museum. Uh, For people to see what I'm talking about, drums that rolled in and rolled out. And... uh, it's one of the greatest places you can visit. You can see pianos from day one, trumpets that Kid Ari played. I mean, people that today's generation never heard of. But it's an amazing, immaculate place. It's two, three stories, but the whole main floor is just an amazing museum. 
and you go from the minute you walk in there, it's just an education that, like, you never knew existed. So if you're ever in that area, it's right by Legoland. Okay, okay. Down towards San... It's in Carlsbad. Uh, it's not quite to San Diego. Wow. Anyway, uh, my point to kids today, when when they ask me in these clinics, you know, how what gives you the incentive or what gives you the impetus I think it's just being a good musician. I just hear things, arrangements. Uh, when you're playing big bands, you're playing sometimes with trumpets, sometimes with horns, with saxophones. Uh, there's something about knowing when to play, when not to play. And so within a very quick time, I learned that I was an accompanist and one of the, and a great accompanist, and I'm not, not just patting me myself on the back. It was great fun being an accompanist because these dancers used to say to me, gee, when you play for me, it's just really nice. I really appreciate it. A lot of guys, when they get in the studios, they want to hear themselves on a record. And <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. You can't do that. Yeah. So within a very short time, you learn one of our phrases is less is more. Mm-hmm. And if you're listening to a song, I mean, what is a song? A song is a story. Now, how can you know what the story is if you can't hear the words? <laughs> so cool it a little bit. Let the words be out there. Some of it, you know, today you have to blame the engineers because they want to hide the voice and bring the band up full. Or the drummers want to hear nothing but drums. The guitars want to hear. The guitarists want to hear nothing but guitars. So there's a very important word, and the word is listen. And before you know it, you got it. You're helping make the records. And I'm talking about the recording industry now. I'm not talking about on stage where you can, as a drummer, it's your show. You can go as crazy as you want. And yet I'll tell you, and I watched Chad Smith, Chili Peppers, good friend of mine, has been down here visiting with me. Uh, we've done interviews together. I watch him. He doesn't go for the craziness. Uh, he's still he's a great drummer, and there's a lot of guys that still play the the drums that way as accompanists. It doesn't have to be their show. Mm -hmm. They don't have to be the show-offs. So that's something that, that it's hard for drummers to understand, maybe, because the thing that drew them to drums was being show-off. We're all show-offs. They needed attention. The girls were always watching the drummer. So, and he had more stuff to hit. So, so that's really sort of what it was all about, and I try to get that across the kids. Did you ever, yes. ta did you ever take formal lessons, or were you self-taught? Oh, no, I took formal lessons while I was... At Nap. And when I got back from Korea, and I went to the yeah. the uh, Roy Knapp School of Percussion in Chicago. But you, but you cannot, but you cannot teach that concept that you were just talking about listening and and no. And well, getting the that. point is, you can talk about it. You can explain that to kids that are truly dedicated, not just you know crashing bangers on a set of drums. If when you. You can find the kids, you know who are dedicated, who are not. 
because they know which snare drums are the best for them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You're not; they're not just kids that sit down and beat the heck out of a set of drums just for for you know the, the sake of showing off. Mm-hmm. So that's why I say, if you're going to be a, a serious studio musician, you've got to know your trade. I always use the analogy of an automobile. The first time you drove a car, scared to death, white knuckles, watching every movement around you, watching for the red light, watching for everything. And after just a few months, really, you're driving the car, it's second nature. You don't have to stare at, is that light going to change? You don't have to stare at people crossing the street. You see that automatically. It's all second nature. Mm-hmm. Drums is no different. Once you get the hang of drums, you know where your drums are located. That's another thing they teach you that they used to teach us in school, was that where you sit, each drum had to be within reach. There was none of this standing up, breaking your arms, ruining your your elbows, getting arthritis so bad using giant drumsticks so you can hit loud and get more attention. <laughs> I always use, I mean, the stick that I use is it's called the Halblane Signature Stick by Zildjian. It, it is the, the smallest, lightest stick of the whole line of Zildjian. Of course, today, Vic Firth, Vic Firth's company, Vic is one of the great percussionists over 50 years with the Boston Symphony. Vic has a company called Vic Firth. And not only do they make drumsticks, they make they make pepper mills, they make salt shakers, they make all this wonderful wooden stuff that's done um, on, you know, with tooling, with great uh, craftsmen that make those things. Well, they make the drumsticks. And they actually have been making those drumsticks for, for many years. In the old days, you bought a pair of sticks, you had to put them on the counter and roll them back and forth and see if they were straight, if they were bent, if they were... <laughs> they used to be messed up something terrible. Wow. That doesn't happen today. Today's sticks, the Zildjian sticks are true, straight, perfect, balanced sticks. So let me... And so I try to tell kids in the studios, when you got all these microphones all over you, you don't need those giant drumsticks that are going to eventually give you really bad arthritis. If you need something light, you use a light stick. If you need something a little bit heavier, you turn the stick over. You play with the butt ends. I mean, that's that's a a lesson in itself. And a lot of kids start to understand that. It's true when you first start practicing on rubber pads and so forth. I used to practice on pillows uh, in order to use my wrists. I wasn't depending on the bounce of the stick. But it's true that in the early days, you used a heavier stick. They actually made steel sticks, heavy metal sticks, uh, just for practice to build up your hands, your wrists, your arms. But today the sticks are just—they're just incredible. And you don't—if you, if you're in a studio, if you're on a stage or something else, you still got—you still have microphones all over you. You go to a show and watch a drummer, 
They're whacking and crashing and jumping all over the place. They're usually covered with tattoos from the waist up, uh, something I could never understand. But if that's today's thing, that's today's thing. Just the way it is. So kids really, uh, you know, if there are a lot of drummers out there listening, just cool it a little bit. Just sit back and learn a song. See what the song is about. Listen to what... It's like method actors. When they go in to do a scene, they want to know what's, what is my method? What's going to give me the impetus to do this scene? Well, it's no different. I call myself a method drummer. And I used to work as an actor before I really got lucky in the drums. But it's just a matter of listening and doing what you think feels right. A lot of that comes from my watching the burlesque theater all those years, watching all the big bands. I used to go to radio shows, live radio shows, uh, right there in Hartford. And I was lucky that the high school used to let us take us to those kind of things. And I would watch sound effects. And when a song talked about, or the story talked about you know, the rumbling sky, I would see these guys shake these various things that made the sound. That You know, radio was probably one of the great teachers in my life, just listening to the sounds. And so I really just became a method drummer. When I was listening to a song and they talked about the rippling stream, I could do things on the cymbal. I could make little sheer things happen, little sizzling things that sounded like river rippling. And uh, if they talked about great thunder, I could use the tom-toms or, in some case, overdub timpani drums like I did with, with Gary Lewis and the Playboys, all those things that I overdubbed. I overdubbed so much, so many percussion items that related to lyrics. Hmm. And I don't mean that it was hokey. It wasn't hokey at all. Darling, you sent me
Monkeys with Valerie on KRCB. And then before that, we had Scott McKenzie and Wear the Flowers in Your Hair When You Go to San Francisco. Okay. Um, we also heard from Sam Cooke in that set. And You Send Me it just shows the scope and the depth of the Wrecking Crew and all the uh, sessions that they played, but particularly the talent of who we're talking about tonight, the interview with Mr. Hal Blaine, the drummer. And I invite you to get on the internet and check out HalBlaine.com or TheWreckingCrew.com and the movie that's coming out about The Wrecking Crew. I think you'll find it fascinating and absolutely enthralling, uh, which was kind of the impetus for this show. And uh, you'll learn a lot about who you really think played on some of these mega hits in the 60s. So in this next section, um, actually, Mr. Blaine uh, gives us a little insight behind Herb Alpert and a couple of his mega hits. You know, Herb Alpert, great trumpet player. He was a sideman like all of us. And uh, he and his partner, Jerry Moss, great businessman, terrific guy. He also was in the horse racing, and just a few years ago, his horse won the Kentucky Derby, which was very exciting for all of us, we should have bet on him, but we didn't. <laughs> anyway, um, the first thing that happened was with the Disney film, I actually worked as an actor for Walt Disney uh, in the very late 50s. And there was, a, there was a time that I got lucky in the music business, and I got a call from Disney Studios for some background music. They were doing a movie... Um, oh, God, I can't remember the name of the movie now. 
it was a major film with the little gal from Australia. Oh, God. In fact, she turned out to be my neighbor not too long ago after that. Um, anyway, at my age, you're lucky to remember what you had for breakfast. I know, but you, you remembered where you lived in Connecticut. Well, you can't forget when you lived in a magnificent mansion. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't forget those things. No, because, Especially no. when you come from the streets. That's right. That's right. And all of a sudden, you're driving a Rolls Royce. Yeah. Um, these things happen. It's like I've said in the past. It was like falling into a vat of chocolate. And uh, anyway, we went to this Disney, the our so-called wrecking crew, which became the wrecking crew quite quickly after that. We went in to do a movie for Walt Disney and for the Disney Studios. And the movie, and the, oh, I can't remember the movie, doggone it. Anyway, the point is, when we went in, the composer had no idea. This was the very beginnings, about 1960, 61, maybe. And they were doing a, a movie, and the conductor, very nice man, had just released this humongous orchestra that was playing backgrounds. And he brought us in, it was myself, Glenn Campbell, who I recently recorded with and did his film that, that'll be coming out. Um, Lyle Ritz was playing bass. Uh, Jimmy Bond was playing bass. Um, Tommy Tedesco, of course, on guitar. It was just amazing, just our little nucleus that had been working nightclubs, doing demos, and we got so good at it they started using us to make masters. So, of course, the Disney Studios called us in, and the conductor, this is the story that you're asking me about, the conductor looked at us, and we're in Levi's, smoking cigarettes, T-shirts. He had no idea that we could read music, <laughs> that we were established musicians already, that we had been already doing films that we had, and commercials and all the, these hit records. That's why they called us in. And this very nice composer, young guy, said, you know, we called, called you in here because we want some of your music in this film that we're doing. It's all about a car, and it was called Herbie the Car, I think. Yeah, or Herbie. That was the name of the car. Yeah, Herbie the Volkswagen. VW. Yeah. And... Uh, he said, we're, we're releasing the orchestra. They'll have a two-hour break, which is usually unheard of. It's usually an hour for lunch. But in this case, he wanted to be sure that we could slowly learn the music, this rock and roll music that we play. And, and uh, then they would all come back after two hours and take over. So a lot of those guys stood around to see this. What, what were these rock and roll kids doing because we that's what they started calling us the rock and roll kids and they started saying these and i heard overheard this several times these kids are going to wreck the business but just like a lot of guys are probably saying today about hip-hop etc etc and so the point is i had a secretary personal secretary a sweetheart 
I was uh, I was actually contracting musicians at times, and I called Arlen, very nice lady. Everyone knew her. Everybody loved her. And I told her that from now on we're going to be the wrecking crew because everybody thinks we're going to wreck the business. They had no idea we were all graduates of institutes, percussion and music, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You played Except the first. For Glenn Campbell. You played Glenn the first. Campbell could not read a note of music, and <laughs> but you could just point to him and he would play the greatest guitar solos you've ever heard in your life. And then you would wave him off, and he would stop, you know, the the solo, and just play rhythm. He could memorize anything. He could sound like anybody singing, which just led to we were booked months in advance. Anyway, that's how the Wrecking Crew name got started. Well, this woman, we're sitting there on the Disney stage in Burbank, magnificent studios. I mean, they were so clean. The whole, all of the grounds at the Disney Studios, you never saw a cigarette butt anywhere, and everybody smoked in those days. And it was Mickey Mouse Street, Minnie Mouse Street, and all of the, I mean, Daffy, everything that, all of their characters were the names of the streets on the Disney lot. So it was a wonderful feeling. And so this fellow, I think his name was Bruner, Bob Bruner, I think, and he told the lady, he said, now, fellas, we, there's a little scene where a bunch of monkeys get out of a car and run around a car and create a lot of nonsense in this little city, and uh, we want some of your rock and roll music. And we're saying, yes, sir, okay, yeah, all right. And he said, don't let the music frighten you. And he doesn't know we can all read this music. The music is sitting in front of us, well over 100 bars. And he, and he says, and we're going to do this to a click track. That's the way we make movies. Because it has to absolutely start at a certain point and stop at a certain point. So don't let it scare you. It's just a guide. Now, we're working with click tracks all day long. And yes, sir, okay. <laughs> so now he says to the lady, Shirley, whatever her name was, uh, turn the click down very, very slow. So these fellas can go along and watch the music and listen to the click track and get and memorize the music. And all of a sudden she says, yes, sir. And he says, okay, go ahead. And she hit the regular click. And the minute we hear those click, 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 to five, six, seven, eight, we're playing. <laughs> and we played the entire piece from beginning to end with all the stops in between, <laughs> with the slowdowns, with whatever happened. <laughs> We did it perfectly. And when we finished, this composer said, my God, how did you do that? And Tommy Tedesco, God bless him, one of the greatest guitarists ever, with his little chunky self, he stood up almost like he had a thumb in his mouth. And he said, well, sir, we practice a lot during the day. <laughs> and that line became the mo- one of the most famous lines with us because producers were always saying that. How did you guys ever do that? And it, almost in unison, we'd all say, we practice a lot during the day. We were doing so many, so many sessions. And the Herb well, Alpert? Herb Alpert came along. Yeah. Uh, this is before the Carpenters, and Herb... 
Kurt talked to a bunch of us about going in and doing a, what we called a scab date or under the table. He was going to pay us cash. They, they were just starting. There wasn't even an A&M records yet, I don't think. And he said, if, if we could go in and, and, and do this, if it's a hit, we'll put you on a contract and it'll be all union, nobody will get in trouble. And we did. We went in and we did a record called The Lonely Bull. And it was two drummers, myself and, um, God, come on, wake it up. Uh, oh, one of my greatest friends and helpers that helped me through this whole thing, Earl Palmer. My God, Earl was a great drummer, great jazz drummer, one of the first rock drummers on the West Coast, along with several others. But most drummers refused to play rock and roll. That's all there was to it. They were all the great studio players. And so we went in and did this little record called The Lonely Bull. It was a major hit. They started A&M Records. And the rest for them is history. They sold it recently for almost... Um, oh, well over $600 million they sold A&M to the Shenley Corporation. Anyway, the point is that, that I joined Herb as the Tijuana Brass, and we did a record called A Taste of Honey, which became number one. It was also the Grammy record of the year that year, which is like the biggest award you can get in the music business. And we were in Gold Star Studios. God bless him. Larry Levine was behind the the glass, turning the knobs. In fact, he became Herb Alpert's uh, head engineer for many years at at A&M, a studio that wasn't five minutes from my house, just down the, the Hollywood Hills, right into the studio. Today, it's the Jim Henson Muppets Studios. Mm. Herb Alpert bought these studios. They used to be the great actor. Oh, God. Charlie Chaplin? Charlie Chaplin. They were the Charlie Chaplin Studios. Just wonderful. But we were doing all the hit records at Gold Star Studios with Dave Gold. Larry Levine was the engineer. And and all of that. It was a great family. And all the Phil Spector stuff that we were doing there. Everything was hits. Everything that came out of Gold Star was a major hit. And so we, with Herb's group, he had a trombone, another trumpet player. I think was I think was uh, Ollie Mitchell. Um, he had his own uh, guitar players and guys have been working with him. All sidemen. And they started this little group called the Tijuana Brass. And we went in, and so we're in Gold Star, and I'm in the, set up in the middle of the studio where I usually set up, where Ricky set me up, my drum tech. And uh, I listened to the song, watching the arrangement, and we listened to a demo, sort of, where they played that opening obligato, va, 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 va. And everybody came in. Well, we rehearsed it just fine, several times, a number of times, and they said, let's make one. Well, when we started recording, 
It was like a train wreck. Da 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 da. da. And no, nobody came in right. The downbeat just wasn't there. So, Mr. Comedian, myself, I looked at them and they, da, 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 da. I looked at the guys and I hit my bass drum. Boom, 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 boom. And on the snare, I started playing triplets. Diddly, 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 diddly. And boom, everybody came in perfect. Well, they liked it so much, they decided that was sort of the hook for the song. Nobody knew it was going to become Record of the Year, the Grammy Record of the Year, <laughs> Song of the Year, all kinds of things. Wow. So anyway, that was exactly what happened. And uh, once again, it was the old comedy coming out, the old burlesque, the dancers, whatever you want to call it, coming out of my stupid brain, <laughs> uh, which people loved. And they loved the fact that I could do that. I was, you know, kind of a gregarious guy. I wasn't I wasn't like a little mouse sitting back there. And it was the same way with Phil Spector. All the stuff that he did, and Brian Wilson used to come by and listen to the, you know, as a producer and, and his little group called the Pendletons at the time. Brian used to come by and listen, and when he got signed by Capitol, who did he hire? He hired the Wrecking Crew. So, and it was the same way. Now, obviously, this is all, more than 50 years later. There's still number one hits all over, all over the world. And oddly enough, um, I must tell you the funny, uh, one of the funny stories, one of the great drummers in Hollywood for many years was a famous drummer, Shelly Mann. Yeah. Shelly was a terrific guy, wonderful friend. He was one of the few guys that, that didn't put us down for this new rock and roll genre. Uh, he was a terrific guy. He was Stan Kenton's drummer, and he was a lot of he was with a lot of great bands and so forth. But anyway, uh, he opened a nightclub, and he opened a nightclub in Hollywood, Shelley's Manhole. It was a great jazz club. I don't know how long it lasted because jazz just doesn't seem to last. But anyway, Shelley was, as I said, very famous. So I bump into him one day and he says, Boy, that group is doing great, that Tijuana Brass group. And I said, Yeah. I said, What you don't know, and I'm making up a story. I said, Herb, I said, uh, Shelley, what you don't know is that Herb is going to open a club right across the street from you. He said, What? I said, yeah, he's got this idea for a jazz club. I guess there'll be competitions with Shelley's Manhole. Oh, my God, what's he going to call it? I said, it's going to be called the Tijuana Brass Hole. Well, <laughs> you can imagine Shelley with <laughs> and laughter. And uh, I was just known for those kind of things coming out of my mouth.
It's knowing that your door is always open And your path is free to walk That makes me tend to leave my sleeping bag Rolled up and stashed behind your couch And it's knowing I'm not shackled by forgotten words and bonds And the ink stains that are dried upon some line That keeps you in the back roads by the rivers of my memory It keeps you ever gentle on my mind It's not clinging to the rocks and ivy planted on their columns now that bind me Or something that somebody said Because they thought we fit together walking It's just knowing that the world will not be cursing or forgiving When I walk along some railroad track and find That you're moving on the back roads by the rivers of my memory And for hours you're just gentle on my mind Though the wheat fields and the clotheslines and the junkyards and the highways come between us And some other woman's crying to her mother cause she turned and I was gone I still might run in silence, tears of joy might stain my face And a summer sun might burn me till I'm blind But not to where I cannot see you walking on the back roads By the rivers flowing gentle on my mind I dip my cup of soup back from a gurgling, crackling cauldron in some train yard My beard a roughening coal pile and a dirty hat pulled low across my face Cupped hands round the tin can I pretend to hold you to my breast And find That you're awaiting from the back roads By the rivers of my memories Ever smiling, ever gentle on my mind All right Glenn Campbell, Gentle on My Mind, and also Herb Alpert with A Taste of Honey. You're listening to Percussion Discussion on KRCB-FM, and we're talking about the famous Hal Blaine, the prestigious drummer of the Wrecking Crew. But uh, the thing about my show is you never know who's going to drop in. And uh, tonight we have a special guest, so I'm going to put Hal on hold for just a second. And we're going to talk to Mr. Tony Saunders. Uh, who has been on this show a couple of times, I believe. And uh, Tony has stopped by the studio because he has a new project, a famous bass player from, well, years. I've had the honor and the privilege to play with Tony on several concerts, and uh, he's here in the studio. Hi, Tony. Hey, how you doing, Jim? Pleasure to be back here at KRCB. Everything's good. I understand you went to the 49er game. Yep, I just got... Uh, came back from freezing at Candlestick Park <laughs> in the farewell season to that wonderful stadium. And uh, Denver Broncos. Uh, they Denver over- 10, San Francisco 6. Yeah, exhibition game though. Yeah, but Kaepernick was 4 for 4 and he looked wonderful and we're ready to go. 
Wow, good. Well, I understand that uh, you are, um, you and I did make contact. Uh, it's not a surprise, sorry to the audience, it's not a surprise <laughs> that you're here. I wanted to, wanted to say that, but uh, but you came in, uh, actually you called me and you said that you have a new uh, concert coming up. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yeah, it? Yeah, I'm uh, working in conjunction with the Safe Harbor Project and DJ Events, and we're doing a concert at the Ridge um, Winery in Santa Rosa, um, next Thursday, it's called a White Linen Affair, and um, I'll be featured there um, along with another group that is really, really super good. I think they're they're called. Uh, it's led by a lady named Annalisa Jack, and um, you know I'll be playing songs off my new CD, which is about to come out on San Francisco Records. It's a uh, CD that'll be titled Appaloosa. And uh, your last CD uh, was on the charts for how long? Uh, 70 weeks. 70 um, weeks. Yeah, it was great. And, and uh, well, we played a couple of cuts from, from this, and I still continue to play some cuts from that CD. Um, and we're going to play one from the new one. Yeah, this, um, I was really blessed on this new CD to get to work with Howard Hewitt um, from the group Shalimar um, with Bill Chaplin, with uh, Tom Pollitzer and some of the members of Tower Power. Uh, Tony Lindsay again from Santana, and so it now it has multi Grammy winners on it. Both Bill Chaplin and Tony Lindsay have won Grammys for outstanding songs. I think uh, Tony Lindsay actually has to put a new mantle above his fireplace. Yeah, he has the uh, twelve. He has twelve, and Bill Chaplin has two. He wrote, he got one for <laughs> "After the Love Is Gone," wow. and "Turn Your," uh, another song that he did for George Benson. Wow. So this is going to be at the Paradise Ridge Winery, 545 Thomas Lake Harris Drive in Santa Rosa. This is Thursday, August 15th, 5.30 p.m. until 8.30 p.m. This is a fundraising event, and um, Tony Saunders is going to be there, live music, and I guess they're going to have uh, the tickets are $50. That's your donation. It includes complimentary beverage and buffet. Mm-hmm. It's a real good dinner. Yeah. So, boy, you get a you get a real good deal here. Yeah, it's a really great thing. Wine, music, and you're helping kids. Yeah, the Safe Harbor Project. Safe Harbor Project helps kids. I've actually talked to a bunch of the kids, and um, they're kids that were from troubled beginnings, and they end up doing really good in school. They have to, um, to stay in the project. They have to, you know, have a really really good grade point average and it's really a pleasure to see kids that uh, really start with nothing usually single parent homes and then they end up all of them usually go to college i think 95 percent of their kids go to college and then they help them through college which is really nice wow wow that is great that's excellent well let's uh let's play that new cut off your album this is called what and and uh this is called my first love and it's actually a true story um because uh, I reunited with my first love, and um, you know this song came out of that, and um, it's going to be coming out as a single in October. Wow! And so this is actually the first time it's ever been on the radio. Wow! Well, let's hope let's hope that the CD player works. Yes, and let's hope that I didn't mess up and there's no scratches in the song because I don't think. Yeah, no, I listened to it once. It's okay. You did. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I hope. Well, yeah. if it didn't, it, I didn't do anything. I, I think that when you 
handled it. Yes. You probably got some of your finger dust. Well, and you probably be. played some percussion on the CD. So that therefore, could be. That could yeah, be. Well, you yeah. know, us drummers, we just we're you guys got to beat on things. We're show offs. We, <laughs> we just hit things constantly. So let's yep. play this tune, and we'll come back and, and talk to you real quick before you have to leave. Okay. All right. To care for her, cherish her, 
Very nice, Tony. Yeah, it, it was a it's a great song. The guy um, was a rem, was a member of Howard Hewitt was a member of the group Shalimar. Oh yeah, back during the the Soul Train days, and he's had a great extended career. Um, it was great to get to meet him, and he sang on the uh, you know in a couple of weeks I got to work with him, Bill Chaplin, got to meet David Foster. You know, it was just a it's been a whirlwind experience working on this new record. And, um, you know, hopefully it's going to do pretty good. A lot of good songs on it. Well, you know, uh, we were talking off the air, and uh, unfortunately I'm not going to think of uh, my first love. Actually, I'll always think of Gumbo. Um, <laughs> and that's <laughs> that's just a private joke that, uh, that <laughs> I'm gonna Tony and I'm going to leave that alone. <laughs> I'm going to leave that, that one Tony alone. Tony and I are going to share. I'm going to leave Well, I want to thank uh, Tony Saunders for stopping by. And uh, if you have any questions, ladies and gentlemen, you can call me here at the studio. Uh, area code 707-584-2020. I'm on till midnight. And we can talk about a white linen affair, Paradise Ridge Winery, 545 Thomas Lake Harris Drive, Santa Rosa. This uh, Thursday coming up, actually August 15th from 5.30 p.m. until 8.30 p.m. for the Safe Harbor Project. And uh, Tony Saunders will be there. And if you've never seen Tony or heard Tony live, we're talking about some great entertainment. He just puts his heart and soul into that bass that he plays, and uh, I think you're really going to enjoy it. So, um, congratulations, Tony, on, hey, on the gig you. and the new CD. And thank you. Hope it has as much success as the last one had. And um, we're, we're we're really excited because all the musicians that come to play on it, you know, they want to hang out and listen to the rest of the CD. So that's a good sign. You yeah, know? so that we, is a good sign. Yeah, that is a good song. All, a lot of good songs. Twelve good songs. And at the winery, we'll be playing half of the new CD. Excellent, excellent. All right. So, uh, well, let's get back to uh, the wrecking crew here. And uh, before we do, I want to say support for percussion discussion and other programming on KRCB FM comes from members and from the Healdsburg Guitar Festival, August 9th through the 11th at the Hyatt Vineyard Creek in Santa Rosa. The festival features the exhibit and sale of custom guitars, workshops on guitar playing, composing, and performance, and ongoing concerts on two stages all three days. Tickets and information at festivalofguitars.com or 800-477-4437. And in this uh, last section here, Hal Blaine talks about um, how he really didn't even think that he was going to be famous, but how things eventually turned out, and then some more music, and then I'll be back for the end of the show. There's so many. I have people that call me sometimes, and they say they were at a party with so-and-so, whatever, Beverly Hills, 
And all of a sudden, my name was mentioned, and everybody turned around. Said, yeah. Is he here? Is he whatever? Yeah. You're, you're and it was just a, just a few weeks ago. It was February the 9th. It was four days after my birthday, which is February 5th. They had Denny Tedesco, son of Tommy Tedesco, is the director of the movie The Wrecking Crew. And it's a, as you mentioned yourself, you've seen the movie. It's a great, great, great documentary movie. Wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Showing it all over the world. He's been all these, all these film festivals. He's been getting awards for the best, et cetera, et cetera. And I got a call from Danny, and he said we're we're doing a uh, on the ninth in Beverly Hills at this theater. We're doing the Wrecking Crew, so we'd like you to come in and, and do the question and answers is what I usually do after the movie shows. And they sell drum heads with my signature and the merchandising or whatever they can do to, to pay off the movie so that it can be released pretty soon. It will be released internationally pretty soon. So anyway, I said, sure, I'll be great. Well, I did go in. And usually they call me up after the movie shows. But in this case, I'm sitting in the audience, 1,800 people. It's a beautiful theater in Beverly Hills. And Denny calls me calls me up on stage, and a couple guys come down and, and you know, uh, escort me up on the stage. And I said, oh, well, usually you call me up, you know, after... Well, uh, we wanted you to. There's a couple comments we wanted you to make, and this, the 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 uh, coming through the curtains. Here's Herb Alpert. Here's Jerry Moss. Here's uh, Jerry. Oh, this guy from New York, great songwriter, Nancy Sinatra. They all come out backstage, and they've got a big chocolate cake for me. Oh, happy birthday, Hal. Happy birthday. And it was with sparklers were burning and it was amazing. And they presented me with this great big framed seven records of the year and a beautiful black thing written in you know, under the glass to me. These were the records that I played. I don't know where they got the forty fives. Yeah. But what a thrill, I can't tell you. I mean I had chills. And I was, I was, you know, there I was on cloud nine. What can I tell you? The people like Tim May were in the audience. One of the great guitar players. Uh, uh, um, Lee Sklar, one of the greatest bass players in the world. All these people were in the audience. It was, I was amazed. It was just really far out. So I, t- I talked As to John Denver used to say, and I spent a, le- a lot of years with John Denver, who always said it was far out. So <laughs> it has been quite a career for me. My goodness, I can't believe it. I had a big band. We recorded at A&M. Larry Levine was also the engineer at the time. It was a great fun. It was a great fun band. Never went anywhere, never got released. Uh, but it was, sure was a lot of fun. Wow. And regardless of the cost, I mean, I was paying for everything. Uh, as I said, you know, I was in that vat of chocolate with just so much money until that divorce hit 1980, and they, everything was taken away from me. So that was a killer. Yeah. A long time. Yeah. 
for me. Fortunately, I had a good reputation. No drugs, no booze. Reliable, responsible. I was still working. So... And you're still, you're still, you're still recording, right? I mean, you're still working. I just did a thing with Nancy Sinatra um, for Billy Strange, who had passed away. I went in, did some songs with Nancy. I just did the the Glenn Campbell movie, which will be coming out. That's Um, that's what I mean. Recorded his last song. I mean, I hope it's not his last song. But uh, he was in a great frame of mind. He sang great. He played great. It was Don Randy, myself, and Joe Osborne. We were like a magic trio again. Wow. And uh, in in the early days, it was Larry Nectel that was playing piano and keyboards and also one of the greatest bass players in the world. And he unfortunately passed away. So, you know, it's... We forget all this stuff was 45, 55, 60 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were we were children. Yeah. We're no longer children. Well, so the the point I was going to make was uh Brian Wilson called recently. Well, it wasn't Brian personally, his wife Melinda, a very nice lady. She called and said that Warner Bros is going to be doing a Beach Boy movie and Brian wanted me to check over the script. And they sent me the script. Wow. And I was only involved, really, in the part of the studio stuff. So I, you know, read I read the entire script, and it's very poignant, and there's some t- very touching stuff. And it's great, and a great arranger, a young man by the name of Bill Pollard, uh, Pollard, very nice guy, very, very sharp guy. I was expecting to see one of the old, Directors come in, but this is a young guy, long-haired guy, and extremely nice guy from, and he's from uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis. Uh, so anyway, uh, I found a, just several things that I thought should be fixed in the studio stuff, and Brian was right because when Brian read it, he said, "You better give it to Hal," and I was, you know, happy to do that. So I'm still kind of involved that way i still do the the whenever denny wants me although i didn't do it uh, a couple of days ago that he was in he had a showing in vegas a screening and i was set to go and then i was not feeling very well so i decided i better not make the trip hmm. but we've got one coming up um in pasadena coming up Around mid June, I think it is. Just about be six, eight weeks from now. I don't know. And that'll be fun. There'll be loads of drummers that come, and we're doing it at the Los Angeles Music Academy, which is Ralph Humphrey and Jeff Picaro's Institute, Percussion Institute for Drummers and Percussion. And Joe, of course, is the father of Jeff Beccaro, right? who was the drummer for Toto. And they were all from Hartford. I mean, it was quite a coincidence.
gentlemen that about wraps up this edition of percussion discussion my grateful thanks to Hal Blaine for the interview uh, on the telephone and also also Denny Tedesco the producer and director of the Wrecking Crew movie that hopefully will soon be released they're waiting for money to buy the licenses for the songs and for the labels etc and you can donate to those causes by going to TheWreckingCrew.com, The Wrecking Crew movie. I think, as I said, you'll be fascinated and enthralled. And the biggest thing that I learned out of this is as I was growing up and learning how to play the drums and playing along to uh, the music of the 60s and early 70s, I thought that I was emulating the style of people like Dennis Wilson and the drummer for Sam Cooke and the drummer for the Tijuana Brass and the drummer for Nino Tempo and April Stevens. And it turns out that the one and only drummer that I was really emulating was Hal Blaine. Uh, And I think a lot of drummers found that out eventually, which, you know what, is a great thing. Um, If we can all play like that, so much the better. And so this show is part two of what I aired two weeks ago, part one of The Wrecking Crew, and both are going to be podcast, and you can go to krcb.org and look at our podcast and replay these songs and this show. 
And uh, I'm also on Facebook, and uh, you can contact me for any future shows that you have an opinion about. And remember what I always say, if you've got something important you want to say, you're never going to find a superior way. You've got to say it with percussion. End of discussion. Got a couple of great shows coming up, uh, and I will tell you about them right here. It's going to be Daniel Glass interview. Daniel is the drummer was the drummer for the Royal Crown Review Jive Band and is now the current drummer for the Brian Setzer Orchestra. Very, very interesting young man on the drums. That is also going to be a two-part series. So lots coming up on percussion discussion in the uh, upcoming weeks. I'll leave you with my theme song as usual because it is the end of the line. Good night and thank you for joining me.
We are North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, Windsor, Santa Rosa. News, arts, ideas, where you are. On air at 91.1 and 90.9, streaming worldwide at krcb.org. You can also find us on Comcast channels 961 and 202. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! immediately following at 12 midnight. Thank you for joining us. Have a pleasant evening.